0: I was a hater when bare-naked ladies were huge. I had just started working at Z100, the top 40 radio juggernaut in scenic Secaucus, New Jersey (sarcasm). when the terribly named BNL came into my life. First, the name was a lie. There were no bare-naked ladies in Bare Naked Ladies, just a bunch of geeky white Canadian guys in baggy pants and oversized t-shirts singing about a million dollars and Chinese chickens check, please. So two decades later, when I was asked if I wanted to talk to Stephen Page, one of the founding members of that band, on the podcast, naturally I said yes, because I was a hater back then, and I've spent the last 20 years trying to shed all that shit which doesn't seem like the natural order of things, you know? You're supposed to get crankier as you get older, right? Get off the lawn! But this podcast, this silly little narcissistic activity, the independent-minded podcast, this ramble that you're listening to right now. It's turning me into a Buddhist monk. It's enlightening me, man. Because I was a hater. Three words best described my career aspirations when bands like Bare Naked Ladies and Sponge and Three Doors Down were touring the world and playing arenas. Those three words, why not me? I was jealous. Plus, this wasn't Pantera. This wasn't White Zombie or Led Zeppelin or even Depeche Mode. This was lame. And the fact that it was lame, unashamedly lame, and that it was successful, should have given me hope. It should have inspired me. Because I was lame. I was a bald freak, man. So I never even tried to like bands like Bare Naked Ladies. I just dismissed them outright. But while I was doing that, millions of other people were doing the opposite. So in a lot of ways, I should have looked up to Stephen Page. But instead, I looked away. So thanks to the podcast I got to finally take a look at Stephen Page. And I liked what I saw. I liked what I heard. Stephen Page looks good. He's a Canadian music hall of Famer. He was inducted by Getty Lee. Getty Lee. He's not in Bare Naked Ladies anymore. Hasn't been for a while even though the band forged on without him. And it sounded to me like Stephen Page was satisfied with that major life decision. He's released five solo albums since leaving BNL about a decade ago. The latest is called Discipline Heal Thyself, Volume 2. Stephen, as it turns out, is also a multi-talented composer, a father, an erstwhile TV star, an activist, and a Canadian gentleman. During our interview multiple times, I referred to the new album as Disciple, instead of Discipline. (laughs) And Stephen never corrected me, and didn't even seem put off by my terrible journalism. And I thought that was very Canadian of him. So, I'm gonna go back to broadcast school, You, loyal listener, are about to hear two men talking backstage at the new City Winery in Washington, DC. Little aside about City Winery, I actually interviewed to be a marketing director at this place back in January of 2018. The place wasn't even built yet, so my job interview was in a dark cave in Brentwood in the freezing cold, and it's now the beautiful City Winery. And it was weird to be there. F***ing spooky, even. But f***ing spooky in the best possible way. Steven and I talk about Elvis Costello, Potty Mouths, epic album covers, his talented sons, feeling icky about social media, and of course, life after bare naked ladies. Gonna kick it off with White Noise from the new album Discipline, Heal Thyself, Volume 2. Then my conversation with Stephen Page right here on Independent Minded Discipline. There we go. It's
1: Ronnie Galzo's amazing podcast. It's Ronnie Galzo's amazing podcast. He's talking to people
0: who make all music. He's plugging. Project, making them famous She's helping them out just by making them talk About all the bullshit cool that they do Do you get jitters? Are there rituals when you start a new tour? has it just become like a second nature thing to you, like getting up in the morning and going to work for uh, an average Joe?
2: No, I get get anxious about it. I mean, at the end of the day, it is just what I do. And, you know, the nice thing is, like this trio, we've been playing together for almost three years as a trio, and we just did a UK tour in August, so it's very fresh. Like, the shows are fresh. We know how they flow. We know how we just know how each other works which is great but still when you start a new official tour and now that i have a new album out which has this different set of expectations yeah you can get a little anxious before a show but i think it's important too i think if you just if it's Means you're alive. Yeah, but so exactly right. <laughs> I mean, it means I, I'm alive and I exist. And otherwise, if I was if it was totally workaday, I'd walk out there and sleepwalk to the show, and that can't be good for anybody.
0: I don't play out enough for it ever to be comfortable for me. But is there a point on a tour or a point during a show where you just feel something kick in where it's like this is what I do, and the confidence kind of takes over to make you.
2: The, yes, but I don't know whether, where, like how to get there. I know that people have come to see me, and I know that I'm pretty good at my job, but it doesn't mean that you walk up there and feel like king of the world every time. I think you feel like, and you have to feel like, you are trying to earn it. You need to earn the respect and the enthusiasm of the audience, and it's also about playing with other musicians. We walk off stage after a show and go like, wow that was amazing and a lot of that is the energy of the audience but sometimes it's just something happens musically that clicks and you work toward that but you don't always get it occasionally you have failures but i feel like we have fewer and fewer of those as i get older but getting the energy up before the show too is an odd thing every day you feel differently yeah sometimes you're totally pumped you can't wait to get out there sometimes it feels like work you know it feels like Oh, I don't know if I can do this tonight. And then you go out there, and of course you can. It's like, it's kind of the most comfortable, most uh, natural thing I do.
0: Do you still feel like that bolt of lightning that I know I felt when I've played for, you know, a hundred people? You know, I mean, oh, you always. Sing- and okay. I
2: mean, I get more the smaller the audience, the more nervous I got, too.
0: I can imagine so. Yeah,
2: I'm not one of those guys who can pick up a guitar in your living room with three other people around and, and sing you a song. Like that's <laughs> yeah. the most terrifying thing to me. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Being on a stage where it's a show feels a lot more natural. So
0: we got to get you back into arenas. I think yeah, that, that's, exactly. that's let natural go habitat. Let's talk about this album. And it's interesting. You mentioned you play with a trio. I'm seeing you for the first time tonight. And I'm interested, based on listening to the album and listening to the album before it, there's, um, I don't know if bombast is, is the right word, sure. but there's, there's a certain aesthetic to the music on the album that I would be interested to see how is going to translate to a, a three-piece band on stage.
2: Well, at the, at the end of the day... It's about the songs, you know, it's about the songs and the vocal. And that's what the whole record is about. But when you make a record, for me, like the fun and the creativity and the excitement of it is in how do I carve out the music I hear in my head? And, you know, I think about all the records that I love and stuff I grew up loving, whether it's, you know, Beatles records or Motown records or ELO records or whatever else. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to be able to try to achieve some of those things or at least imbue some of the songs with those influences. You can't do that necessarily live unless you put together a 10-piece band, which is fun. I've, I've had large bands as a solo artist, and that's a really fun thing. The wonderful thing about this trio is we can kind of sound as big as we need to sound and as small and intimate as we need to sound as right. well. You know, I think you'll find that sometimes you'll think, wow, it's just three people up there, and, and there's a lot, a lot happening musically.
0: I mentioned this is a checklist. I'm holding uh, an eight and a half by 11 Piece of paper with way too much uh, font and scribble on it, only because I talked to a lot of artists who I grew up loving. One, for instance, is somebody I want to talk to you about who's been uh, on a television show with you, Mike Doty. Oh yeah,
2: uh, awesome.
0: I grew up loving Soul Coughing. I grew up in the '80s and '90s, and I started in commercial radio at a time where you know bare naked ladies had kind of broken mm-hmm. in America. Mm-hmm. I didn't give that band much of a chance because I worked in the commercial radio industry where I heard one week right, you on heard the radio the pop singles and a gazillion and- times. Yeah. And being probably younger and a little more closed minded than I am today, mm-hmm. I probably dismissed the band in, in a way that a lot of people from my generation did in the sense that they kind of thought as the band is a, a novelty act. Right. But I will admit that I've, I listened to Stunt recently in preparation for this. And after the bad acid flashbacks of the first two songs, I thought it was really good. And, and I do the research to make a list like this because I want to it allows me to dig deeper into bands and artists that I only knew basically by name. Right. And because of that, I found that a lot of interesting things about you and about your solo material. Number one is you just were inducted into the Canadian music hall of fame. Mm-hmm. And I watched a video of that and freaking Getty Lee inducts you. Yeah, Was that just like a surreal experience for you? or
2: It was, but it was also, it all happened so quick too, that it was just kind of like trying to soak in every second of that thing. And, you know, one of the things about, I was trying to add my former partner in BNL, we were always the guys who made fun of the people in the Hall of Fame. The yeah. you know, Hall of Fame was like the retirement home, and now all of a sudden we're in it. And when you know, when we went to the actual where they have the Hall of Fame room at the National Music Center in Calgary, and they unveiled our plaque, and there's our name next to Rush and Oscar Peterson and Glenn Gould and Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and the Guess Who, and there's us. And there's only 50 other acts other than right. us. Right, it's and not a big it, class. It's, right, It was a pretty moving thing to realize that that we were somehow included in that group of artists. You know, to address what you were saying before about kind of dismissing the band out of hand, like that's something we battled from the very beginning. I can imagine, sure. You know, because humor was part of the group. And when it started, it was just a duo. It was just myself and Ed. Probably the closest touch point people had for us was the Happy Giants because it was a duo. Absolutely. And the songs were, were eclectic and humorous. But you embrace yep. the goofiness. I sure, think. absolutely. Yeah. Because I, I think at that point, especially when we started the end of the 80s, imagine this is the time of the Joshua Tree. This is the time of, of absolute dire seriousness. Pseudo seriousness. That's in right. Music. Everything's, right. A, everything's a drawn face and a leather jacket and a cowboy hat <laughs> and whatever. And, and it just seemed like...
0: Well, some of that music is good, too. Oh, really? I, I, and now I
2: appreciate it more than I did. I mean, I loved... I grew up listening to Punk and and new wave and experimental music and then got into things like you know folk music and R and B and so on later, but I looked at that stuff at the time and I grew up a huge U two fan. But by the time Joshua Tree and Rattle and Hum were out, it was like, come on, guys. See, that's when I came in. Sure, well, because you you're came younger out. than me. Yeah, okay, and, fair and enough. <laughs> and I so I understand it, but um, you know, also we would see the other bands in our community in Toronto trying to look like that and act like that and the leather pants up on the the boot up on the monitor. And we're like we know you drove your mom's car here to the gig tonight. <laughs> so our stick was like, we drove our mom's car to the gig. And that kind of, it grew from there. But what that meant was all the labels in Canada rejected us out of hand. They were like, ah, oh, it's a novelty thing. It's, you know, even though we were building a bigger and bigger audience, cause we put on a killer live show and we had good songs to back it up. But all people saw if they weren't paying attention were kind of the novelty things. It ended up taking Seymour Stein from Sire Records to, fall in love with us and go and take us under his wing and sign us and kind of made the Canadian labels take a second look but Canada was always playing catch-up but what we did over over time we were big in Canada for a while and then as happens often there is it becomes a backlash people decide that they're over you and we were a professional band we wanted to play as many gigs as possible so we spent all of our time traveling around the US and one of the things we would do is we'd play Every time we'd play a bar and there'd be 300 people there, we'd come back two months later and there'd be 600 people. We'd come back again. It was always under the radar. I remember there was a point where we were selling huge numbers of tickets in Detroit, selling out theaters, for example, and the radio people just assumed it was people coming across the border. And somebody showed them the zip codes from the Ticketmaster receipts and they went, oh, this is our audience, and started playing us. That was about 96 so a couple years before stunt came out and that was what happened in certain markets detroit chicago boston new york city people started adding us to their playlists and all of a sudden we're playing arenas so before stunt even came out we were playing arenas all over the country and amphitheaters and stuff which surprised people because it seemed like we were part of a cohort of groups and some of them were great groups some of them i'm less a fan of but Thing, but the other groups that were out at the same time as us. So we have, you know, Smash Mouth and Sugar Ray and- Presidents
0: uh, of the United States Exactly right. Yeah.
2: And, you know, some of them are great bands, Presidents, especially I love, and there was also the Wallflowers at the time and Fastball and- um, yeah, Bringing me back to like when I first started working. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was kind of an interesting time for music. <laughs> for sure. But, you know, I think a lot of us kind of got pegged as one hit wonders when in fact we'd already sold several million records by the time we had our first hit. Yeah. We'd been a band for 10 years. So it allowed us to keep going. You know, when I released solo records in my post-band career, I know that sometimes radio people, journalists, whatever else, kind of don't give it the credence or even give it the ear that they need to give the record because their memory is-
0: They're expecting. Of Chickadee China. That's
2: right. And, which is a song I'm proud of, I'm proud of one week, but it's just a small part of what we did. Yeah, I guess it's okay, but I, you know, I, I feel like people are, I feel like people who could like what I do, don't give themselves the opportunity to hear it.
0: Well, I'm here to tell you the opposite, Stephen Page. I've taken much more of a liking to your solo material, and you're nearly 10 years removed from being band Stephen to being solo Stephen. There's definitely more of an eclectic mix of influences I hear on your solo material, Mm -hmm. starting with White Noise, which we kicked off the podcast with, a very politically charged song that immediately reminds me of like Elvis Costello style Great. songwriting. Another guy who I didn't give the time of day when I was younger, and then I went, uh, he just toured on the Imperial Bedroom 20-year mm-hmm. anniversary. I wish I had like seen that. that. The show was good, mm-hmm. but it actually made me go back and listen to that record because I knew he was going to play all the songs right. from it. And I was just like, where have I been? Yeah, where I, was I in 1982? It's, I mean, well, I was you were, seven. Yeah, so. there you go. Even,
2: <laughs> but even for me, I probably didn't, I fell in love with him with with the second record, And then kind of like drifted off. And then by my late teens, I got obsessed with Elvis Costello. So I'm I'm a huge fan. And so I appreciate that. Okay, good. It shines
0: shines in the material. Did you know there'd be a part two when you wrote part one in 2016? Is this? Yeah,
2: it was because I I had written about 20 odd songs and, and was debating whether to kind of put them all out at once which is a lot to ask of an audience you know, like hey, here's 25 new songs for you to try to learn before you come see the concert or and also
0: guy. kind of the opposite practice of what a lot of artists are doing that's nowadays. right
2: and everybody tells you well, you should put out EPs or a song a month which to me sounds like that works great if you're Drake but I don't think my audience when, once you're in your 40s people are less inclined to keep track of everything you do like I can put stuff on social media all day but people aren't always looking for that and sometimes what people want is like you know, they want a physical CD to walk out of the venue with as a kind of a souvenir of what they heard that night. Sure. And I felt like doing a, like a double album length album was potentially self-indulgent. And also it's like it's so easy to release an album and have it just disappear a week after you release it. Oh, yeah. All that work you put into it. It's so a common
0: theme on this podcast.
1: Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> and and uh, I thought at that point, like, best thing to do is chop it in half, figure out a way for two sets of songs to sit. Together. But by the time I was ready to get the second half finessed and ready to be put out and mixed and so on, I realized that some songs had kind of I didn't wasn't feeling anymore. And I'd written a whole bunch of new songs and was really excited about that. And I didn't want to just wait. And I realized that in a lot of ways they did fit they fit in thematically and musically with what I was trying to do with part two anyways.
0: Well, one theme that has stayed consistent on both albums is your uh, creative use of the F-bomb. I feel like you upped the ante on part two. Where did you get such a potty mouth?
2: Most people of, of my generation and group of friends use whatever, foul language more often than we do in a formal situation. But I don't think that rock music is formal. I feel like there's lots of room for the vernacular. Oh, yeah. And I think that's the fun part about it. Although my kids are like, oh, great. This is the album where dad swears. Oh,
0: I didn't consider that. That's
2: right. You have, you have, you have we're three children, right? I have three sons. Yeah. They're grown ups. They're OK.
0: Well, I bring it up because I mean I noticed it obviously, but a former bandmate would like balk at my use of of the F bomb in my lyrics. Passive aggressively. It's lazy writing, it's unnecessary. But I always felt that it added like a certain emphasis to the point I was trying to get across. Am I allowed to
2: use the words in the in this podcast? Or do you want me oh to yeah, well bleep, no, bleep them out and it'll all be all right. Because so, it'll so, so in the song you f***ed yourself. I mean, the joke is using the language. To right, have, that's a title. Have, of have, every yeah, song, and it's it's like smooth. It's like I was trying to write the smoothest kind of steely Danish kind of thing with with backup singers and stuff singing what you would say to yourself when you're angry at yourself. So right. yeah, I mean, yeah, that's I the it. fun part of it. <laughs> if they were just saying. You really wrecked it now. It'd be like It wouldn't have the same no, impact. I, yeah, I agree with you. I think as a younger writer, first of all, it can come across as being lazy or poser-ish or something like that. I'm trying to show I'm tough, but I have nothing to prove anymore. So it's sure. like I don't have to worry about that. And honestly, the other thing is I don't have to worry about radio play because I have no expectations that anyone's ever, anyway, ever going to play that stuff on the radio. And then yeah. White Noise comes out as the single. <laughs> and it's well, that's um, what
0: radio edits are for.
2: Exactly. Right? So I had to do the edit myself, which was so much fun. I just, you know, clipped out the SH of the of the first foul word and then the second one where it says uh I just stretched out Real to cover up the other word. It was oh, great. so you did it yourself? Yeah, okay. it was fun.
0: That's the DIY spirit right there. In the '90s, it would have been like a goat sound effect over it or something. That's right. <laughs> so good. So I shouldn't have given a f- about what that guy thought about me using the f word. You, no. you me I mean, some as long validation. as you
2: believe it. As long as, but sometimes when someone gives you, a, especially a passive aggressive criticism, yeah. They last, I find that, like, especially if it's a bandmate, those things, they'll last in your mind for the next 20 years. Oh, yeah. You'll think, oh, <laughs> he said that terrible thing about my song I worked so hard on. But part of you, part of your brain is saying, I think he's right. Are you saying I'm insecure? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm saying I'm I'm, insecure. I'm just sharing my own experience.
0: Well, it's one that I can relate to uh, on a much smaller scale. But, yes, I think you're right. Now, um, I don't have my, my phone with me. I'm trying to be a good journalist. I mean, it's with me, but it's not on the table. But I, I did take a picture of the album cover. I want to... Uh, give special recognition to the album cover. Nice. And, well,
2: it, my wife did that. That was my wife. Oh, did the okay. Artwork.
0: See, I'm learning. I'm learning more stuff. It's a whole bunch of items, keyboards. Mm-hmm. Are they all
2: intertwined in some way? They're mostly things I leave lying around the house. Is some of it, but it's also just things that are kind of part of my identity, or things that are always in my pockets or on my person. So whether it's guitar picks or parking receipts or um, instruments that I'm always playing, and then there's a few bits of personal identity like. Uh, my bar mitzvah picture with my dad and stuff like that.
0: Nice. Are you still a music nerd? Totally. Okay. Because when I was a kid, like the album covers would make me want to listen to the records. Sure. Can you give me off the top of your head, three album covers that you remember as a kid or a teenager, or even as an adult, who when you saw it, like it just brings you back to the the record.
2: Oh sure. I mean, well Sgt. Peppers is a big is a big one. it's sure. kind of a cliche. Iconic, but, yeah. but the amount of time that I spent looking at that, you know, reading the lyrics, and the lyrics are hard to read too, because they're over top of a picture of them from the back and it's on a red background. But reading that, anything that had that had like who plays what on it. I love any of that stuff if it's got full credits, liner like, notes all and the stuff liner like notes that. Yeah, I would stuff. read all that stuff. Like that's why our first album Gordon it has is so full of liner notes because I was exercising my own music nerd demons. But <laughs> then another album I think of all the time is the first knack album, Get the Knack and the one with My Sharona. Yeah. On the back it's just a picture of the four of them against a white psych playing. But it's Ludwig drum kit and guy playing a Fender precision bass, guy playing a Strat and Guy playing Les Paul. They looked like, to me, that's the icon of what a rock band should look like. I mean, people kept, at that time, just said, oh, they're trying to look like the Beatles. But really, it's like the perfect power pop setup. And I would always just stare at that as I listened to that record, imagining that I was one of those guys on stage.
0: Right on. Yeah. It's funny you brought up the knack, because uh, I was driving back from uh, New York this past weekend, and we were listening uh, to satellite radio, and and they were playing back like the American Top 40 countdown. Uh Uh-huh. from like 1979. Yeah. And uh, the Knack, My Sharon, was like number one for four weeks in a row. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that big of a song. Oh,
2: it was huge. That and Good Girls Don't off that record. All, all right. See, I'm gonna, see, I got to write that down. I always I, learned. Good Girls Don't's the better song.
0: Okay. Yeah. Now I'm going to listen back to this and remember to listen to it on, uh, on the interwebs. Yeah, we you, you got a third album cover for me? Or?
2: Uh, let me think. Um, I guess I have this strong memory of lying in my parents' living room. Floor on the shag carpet with those giant Radio Shack headphones. Same
0: on. for me. Mine were uh, Realistics. Yeah,
2: they're realistic. They okay. were called like Nova Pro or something like that. They had like little volume knobs on the sides. Oh,
0: you were you were much fancier than they me. Were, I don't well, Or just older.
2: What's um, <laughs> another good one? I used to stare at a lot. Oh, Kiss originals. First Three Kiss albums repackaged together into a, a big set that had a poster and it had like Kiss oh, Army stickers, they knew how to do it up, sure. tons of pictures. So, yeah, how to the you They The crusty,
0: the clown of, uh, of hair metal.
2: Uh, oh, totally. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't mean it was good, it just means it was nice to look at.
0: <laughs> well, that's Kiss in a nutshell, isn't yeah. it? All right, I'm gonna go with um, Deep Purple Burn, where it's the candles of all the, the members of the band on the front right. and the back, they're all melted. Yeah, Edgar Winter Group. Creepy? They only come out at night. Yeah, that's
2: a creepy album cover. Whereas the
0: Albino Edgar Winter Group—that's yeah. the album with Frankenstein and yeah. Free Ride on it. And then I'll get a little—I'll uh, go a little further down the line, and I'll go with Scatterbrain. Here comes trouble—a uh, novelty metal band that had a really cool. It looked like the, a cover of like a, a Mad magazine, and it was a kid flying a kite, and lightning was about to strike
2: him. I don't know the album at all, but I bet yeah. you I would have loved it. I Scatterbrain. Loved that
0: all, all right, I'll go listen to that Knack song. You yeah. listen to Scatterbrain after the show. Let's talk about your origins. Like I said, it's a checklist, and I always ask about influences. You've already thrown out a bunch of classic bands that I love, mm-hmm. the Beatles and ELO amongst them. You grew up in Canada. Your father was a drummer. Your mm-hmm. brother was a drummer. You were a piano player.
2: That was my first. first I've never been a good piano player. I'm still Me neither. Of, I'm still, but I had to take lessons <laughs> from like the age of five on. Same here. And then when I was about 14, I started playing guitar, taught myself how to play um, White Wedding by Billy Idol. Right on. And... Uh, Realized it was never a good guitar player either. But the best thing was team up with other people who are good guitar players and write and sing your own songs. I'm terrible at covers. It's just yeah. not my thing. Like, I can barely remember people's words except for my own. But you know, I love playing music. I love the feeling of it. Even singing in choirs and stuff as, as a kid. Singing and playing with other people is like the greatest feeling. Did you ever give the drums a shot? Was that
0: oh, yeah. something you I considered? I was terrible.
2: I think I've finally gotten <laughs> better. I play in this group called the Trans-Canada Highwaymen, which is like, myself, Craig Northy from The Odds, who plays with me in the trio. Oh, cool. Chris Murphy from Sloan and Mo, nice. Mo Berg from Pursuit of Happiness. And we all play each other's hits, but we all trade off instruments. Oh, wow. So there's some songs where I have to play drums.
0: So Canadian all-star bands? Yeah. Oh, and you play drums in that, uh, on in some that band some of that stuff. a while.
2: and uh, Usually it's, it's on Sloan songs, and Chris from Sloan is not happy with my drumming because <laughs> he's a great drummer.
0: <laughs> Couldn't he find somebody else in the band to play drums? Oh, I'm and, like, sure he'd, he'd love you, that, but I want to do something? it. Okay, I have fun doing, doing
2: it. it. Any other musical inspirations? Um, well, we talked about Elvis Costello as well, and uh, The Jam, Paul Weller. Huge, oh, very cool. he, A huge fan of them. Um, my biggest hero as a teenager, and, and kind of my inspiration in my early years, was a songwriter named Stephen Duffy. On my called, list. There you go. Now Stephen Tintin Stephen Duffy. Duffy. Uh, and then he has a, he's had a band for 30 years now called The Lilac Time, which is kind of English folk rock. But we became friends later on and wrote a bunch of, my biggest hits together and made the record together and so on. So it, sometimes it's worth introducing yourself to your heroes. Well
0: that's I I read online that he responded to a fan letter
2: that you wrote him. He did. did. And
0: that's what kind of started your friendship and then your musical partnership. Yeah, that's, and this is before
2: the internet, like where you actually had to, you know, actually like, write a take letter a pen back. Out, yes, yeah, that's right.
0: And put a stamp on an envelope.
2: Exactly. And uh, we became friends, and then uh, I remember once we were playing at the the old Bottom Line Club in New York, and nice. he happened to be there. It was 1993. He came to the show, and we were hanging out afterwards, and he said, do you want to write some songs together, which is what I'd always wanted to hear, and I said yes, and we ended up having a very long partnership and friendship.
0: Did you recognize the existential nature of that rare situation? Like, oh, I knew. It was
2: like- well, How does that happen? Yeah, right? it's, it was like a, a bizarre dream.
0: Yeah. Okay, and yeah. you, are you someone else's Stephen Duffy? No, I'm
2: not that I'm not nearly I mean I'm not nearly as um giving. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. I was going to say ta- I, I was waiting
0: for the word talented to come out, but <laughs> this is <laughs> Stephen Page at his most honest. I mean, are you waiting for that person to send you a no. letter? No, you're not. No. You're just going to take the Stephen Duffy I, I, the gift. The I have,
2: I also do I do have children who are incredibly talented. Oh, cool. Um, okay.
0: You're also musicians
2: and I've spent most of my kind of creative mentorship time with them. I've mentored other artists in you know songwriting programs or I did some stuff at the National Music Center in Canada this year mentoring some younger artists. But really, like when it comes to, to writing and producing and recording, that's stuff I've done with my kids more than anything else. Do they play? Yeah, they're all amazing. My eldest is doing his master's in orchestral conducting right now, so he's wow. way surpassed me. But he played in rock bands in high school and stuff, and I recorded them. And then my middle guy is going to college for musical theater. He's an amazing performer, but he's also a really great player and, and songwriter, so I'll bounce stuff off of him. My my youngest he's more into doing the making beats thing, which I understand less of. Okay. But
0: it's super, a thing super talented. Yeah.
2: That's awesome. They all sing on, on different records, but my youngest sings fairly prominently on the part one of this Oh very awesome. Records, yeah. Well the
0: apple doesn't fall the apples don't yep. fall far from the tree. Other projects where do you have the time for this? Uh,
2: I don't. Oh, my God. I'm <laughs> you're so... intimately
0: involved in uh, Canadian politics, wildlife preservation. You were on an episode of How I Met Your Mother. We talked about one of the things that I brought up at the outset was that you were the host of a TV show called The Illegal Eater. Yeah. Was that like Canada's
2: version of like the Anthony Bourdain shows? Kind of like that. I mean, actually, we would go places, you know, whatever. we We would show up somewhere in New Orleans at some underground restaurant because the whole thing was about restaurants that were like, pop-ups or underground restaurants or you know, you had to know someone, knew someone to get in or they were doing something illegal serving wild game or moonshine <laughs> or something like that and speakeasy sort of yeah, stuff all that kind yeah. of stuff or producers of stuff people who make moonshine but we'd show up everywhere we'd go on, uh, on this thing we'd show up somewhere and they'd say oh yeah Bourdain was just here last week. It's like god damn can't we find something ourselves <laughs> but it was a really fun show to do.
0: Considering uh, your well-rounded career I mean, if you weren't making music what would you be doing to put bread on the table oh
2: man i don't know because i've been doing this so long that's the greatest thing is that i've been doing making music for a living for 30 years like how i it's like i know how lucky i am and i am so thankful for it you know if you had asked me when i was 18 or 19 or 20 i would have thought oh maybe i'll be a writer i wanted to like write books and maybe teach university english because that's what i was taking and that's what i was passionate about being in a band was something i fell into i never thought I was good enough at anything musically to be a professional musician. Though you were wrong, apparently. Well, yeah, yeah it wasn't <laughs> until I um, I started performing with Ed Robertson from Brandy Kid Ladies that the way our voices harmonized together and the way that we riffed back and forth and could write songs easily together as a duo, that's what showed me that not only was I good at it, but I also loved it and that those two things were allowed to go together. Yeah. Part of our culture with art, even though there are fewer and fewer kind of amateur musicians, everybody wants to be a professional. You know, once they pick up a guitar, they imagine being a professional, which is not necessarily the purpose of music. I mean, music's for the soul. And I so admire people who can be whatever they are, uh, doctors, and then... Shred on the guitar on the weekend, I think it's you know, it's easy to make fun of in a way But it's also I think it's a beautiful thing because I think that's the real purpose of music. So that said I Had no idea I could do this until I was doing it once I was in it I was like there's no going back. I've fallen head over heels in love with what I do and The fact that I'm able to sustain it. It's rare and it's awesome.
0: You see yourself stopping at any point, or no? no there's no reason to stop they're gonna unless, tr- they're gonna drag unless you up, I, you know, I physically couldn't do off it. The
2: stage. That's right. <laughs> well, and you know, there's so many ways to make music too. That's you know, whether I'm performing concerts, you know, people stop coming, and that's the end of that. Right. Then fine, I can still write, and I write score material too for a theater, and I can do it for film or television. Like as right. long as I'm playing and being creative, I'm very happy.
0: There's two lines of thinking, I guess, when you separate yourself as you did about nine, ten years ago, from a band that, you know, sold millions of records. Mm-hmm. I don't know what your take is, and I want to get it is, you know, the whole pushing forward in an artistic way. Mm-hmm. Now you have as much as you love the harmonies and you love the collaborating, now it's just Steven. Right. It surely had to give you pause to separate yourself from something that was this well-oiled machine and could survive on its own history, even though the music industry has changed so much for you and for them over the past 10 years. So what was that like for you to, to kind of walk away and say, okay, it's all on my shoulders now.
2: It was terrifying. I'm sure. I mean, I (laughs) I had, I started the group when I was 18 and I left when I was 38. I'd never been an adult and not a bare naked lady. Like those those two things were so intertwined for me that it took me time to learn how to be an adult on my own as my own person, which was, in the end, great for me, you know, it was something that I needed, but I didn't even know I needed it then. I was only thinking of things like my creative life, but my life as a, you know, a husband, a parent, a a, a friend, a human being who knows how to pay his bills on time or show up at an appointment on time or without a tour manager, you know, like the, 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 we really ended up getting spoiled. Not, not that we were particularly precious about it it's just how our life worked and we were so busy that everything was always scheduled for us and everything was always organized for us because otherwise we wouldn't get anywhere so to have to start doing stuff yourself was a great lesson but the other side of that coin back to the first part of what you were saying about being solo is i realized that being solo doesn't necessarily mean being alone being solo offers you myriad opportunities for collaboration you know hence the trio that i'm doing like it's when I'm on stage with them, even though it's a Stephen Page show, it feels like a band. Like We are locked in like a band. And I get to choose with whom I collaborate, and on what projects, and how much of my time I devote to different projects. And that's what solo really means to me, is, is being able to be the master of your own destiny as far as the choices you make. Right. But I always prefer collaborating on some level with other musicians. You obviously had
0: the advantage of having that platform of being in a band like that mm-hmm. when you took that leap, but I 'm sure it took a certain amount of patience for you to get to a point where you felt comfortable in your own shoes as a solo artist. The industry has changed so much, and I interview a lot of bands. What advice would you give for a younger artist? you know I have younger artists on this podcast a lot too. I just interviewed another Canadian artist his name's Michael Rault. And you know he played a, a little theater in downtown DC, and he was an opening act, and I could tell that the audience really wasn't there to see him. And mm-hmm. his songs are great, his album is great, and he's got you know, great producers. But what would you tell an artist like that who does not have that bare naked ladies or that Toad the to wet sprocket platform about patience? Like, do you wait for uh, an opportunity or a miracle to happen
2: to break at this point? Well. I don't know how you break at this point. Like Seymour the,
0: Stein doesn't have the clout that he. Uh, that's right, and I don't,
2: I don't have the attention of the media and the public the way I might have when I was a younger person. But you know, when we started the group, it was all about word of mouth, which is essentially what social media is. You know, just amplify. Oh yeah. Um, if you have that, that's great. So I hate doing social media stuff. It doesn't. It like it, it. It.
0: It makes me feel icky.
2: Yeah, it yeah. does make me feel totally icky. It makes me feel like either i'm just a salesperson which is what i use it for because otherwise if i try to engage on some kind of personal level with people it feels phony it feels like i'm using my personal life to try and sell stuff like at the end of the day it comes back to marketing or it creates an illusion with your fans that they know you better than they know you and that's not fair to them either interesting thought yeah but for younger people they regard things differently. Like They they have a different sense of what the value of that is and how to use it better. So if you're a younger artist, use it if it works for you. But if not, just take every opportunity you can. Like Experiment with different things. Say no to lots of stuff that makes you feel icky. But say yes to everything that sounds like it might be fine. I've learned to trust my gut. I will say no or protest loudly about something that I know is just going to feel like it's like someone's trying to take advantage of me or whether it's financially or just my having me at their event is somehow gonna make them feel better but it's not gonna make me feel better it's gonna make me feel worse you know right. you really feel servile in a strange way say no to those things if you don't feel comfortable with it but if you're comfortable playing at somebody's wedding which I've done before too and had a great time yeah. then just say yes and also don't be afraid to ask people ask bands you like whether you can open for them ask clubs whether you can play there if they say no The other thing baron, Kid Ladies used to always do when we were young and spirited. Burn the club down. No, just show up and play in front of it anyways. (laughs) We would just bring our acoustic instruments and just stand in front of the club and play there. All right. So uh, it's guerrilla marketing at its finest.
0: Uh, Sage advice from Stephen Page uh, backstage at City Winery. Uh, I told Stephen before uh, we started the interview, I almost worked here and now I get to see uh, the first show I ever get to see here at the place I didn't get the job at uh, <laughs> is Stephen Page uh, first show of the tour good luck on the tour thank you uh, last question uh, when's part 3 coming out
2: there's no part 3 I think it'll just ah. be a fresh batch of songs when the next one comes All
0: out alright well check out part 2 and part 1 and Stephen thank you so much for the time I look forward to seeing you my for pleasure the
2: time thank, you. thank you thanks
1: out here where I'm living I'm standing Times it gets lonely, but I know I'm not alone. So set out on your journey, your destiny unknown, only illumination. There's a shine. I'm tired. Looking for the light. Ooh. Looking for the light.
0: I'm looking for the light. I'm looking for the light. That was Looking for the Light from Stephen Page's great new album, Discipline, Heal Thyself, Volume 2. Earlier in the podcast, we heard White Noise. Pick up the new album, find out more about Stephen at StephenPage.com. Follow him on icky social media at Stephen Page. I want to thank Stephen for the awesome conversation. Ray Rolden at Raby and Stephen's tour manager, Paul, for putting us together. And the fine folks at City Winery DC for the hospitality and the delicious fried chicken. Good thing I didn't get the job there. I'd be a fat drunk. Links to archived episodes of the podcast at BaldFreak.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at BaldFreakMusic. And listen and subscribe to Independent Minded on iTunes, SoundCloud, and iHeartRadio. And as always, thanks to our sponsors. Next time on the podcast, more Canadians. I talk to Our Lady Peace lead singer and founding member Rain Maida in a broom closet backstage at 930 Club.